how do we uh, prefer God's truth over our opinion? When we think about God's word, God's word is truth. It leads us to faith and salvation. It is likened to bread and water, which are necessary to live. It teaches us of liberty and freedom in Christ. It's a light unto my path. It's, it's teaching me how to cleanse my ways. It's the sword of the spirit. It discerns the intents and thoughts of the heart. It convicts me when I'm wrong. It tells me and assures me when I'm right. It tells me of a wonderful savior who's coming back someday to take up his church. It tells me of this eternal home. And when I know that those are the truths that are taught in God's word, how on earth could I possibly prefer my opinion over something like that? Well, the sermon's done. That was all you needed to hear. <laughs> uh, we are, uh, by the way, my name is Matt. I'm the, uh, one of the pastors here, and uh, it's good to be with you. We are transitioning. Uh, if you've been with us, we've been in the Gospel of John, and we are putting a pause on the Gospel of John uh, because it's kind of become a tradition that after Easter, we take however many weeks there are from Easter and to Memorial Day, that changes every year, and we do a short topical series. Normally at Anthem, we work through books of the Bible. Uh, that's kind of our meat and potatoes, steady diet of what we're doing like 90% of the time on Sundays. Uh, but we are going to use this time to address things going on in the life of the church, unpacking realities that we are facing as a church. And, and one of the things is right now, so much is changing in the world around us. Uh, so much is changing, uh, even for us in the, as, as a church body, there are always things that are changing, and here's, here's why we want to do this series on our values, because we want to identify what will never change, what never changes. Let me give you a picture of why this series is important. When I was in uh, undergrad was when Katrina happened, uh, Hurricane Katrina, and I was able to go down shortly after uh, to help with the relief work there. And I was stationed down in the Ninth Ward. And if you know anything historically about it, uh, what happened when the hurricane hit, uh, they, the waters built up and were pounding on the levees to the point that the levees broke. And it hit, it most affected the Ninth Ward, which was under the sea level. And when I got there, what was interesting was I expected to see just kind of, you know, see the levees, there's a break, and then there's kind of like houses are a mess. But what I saw was for about a mile or two before the levees where they were broke was just flattened fields. And all the houses were like five, six blocks this way. And some of the houses looked like they hadn't even been affected. It just looked like somebody had walked over and been like, I don't like this property. Let's just go here, right? And it just moved on over. And what I found when we got near the levees was in the flat area, there was just cement slab after cement slab after cement slab in the ground. And then with some staircases that were like stone cases just leading up to a porch and there was no house there anymore. And what had happened was when the water, when the pressure came and the levees finally broke and the, and the flood came and the pressure mounted, whatever it was that held that house, because they were sturdy built houses, but whatever it was that, that, built, that, that held that house there to that foundation was not strong enough. The anchor bolts were not strong enough. When the pressure was strong enough, they just completely moved the house over. The reason why I tell you that as... <laughs> As a word picture, is that is why we are doing this series. Because the question becomes for us, when the pressures rise, when the, when the pressure mounts and the waters rise and the culture around us and they come up against the church, when the levees break, and I would say one of the things we're experiencing in our day is that a lot of the old things that held back those waters are starting to break down and the pressure is coming. And the question is, how do we as a church stay, as we're titling this series, unmoved? unmoved in the realities, the foundational realities that we say we believe, the reality of who God is, the reality of the truth of how he's made the world. How do we anchor ourselves down so that we are unmoved no matter what pressure comes? Many of you may be asking, as these things are happening in the world around us, how, how is, the, is the church going to change? And when the, what happens is when the church goes through any kind of change, we freak out because we go, does this mean everything's changing? How are we anchored? Here's what, why we're doing this series, to say these are the things we, we, are, we are anchoring ourselves down, we're drilling down deep and saying we are not moving. And value one today is that we start with valuing God's word. I know it says God's truth on the video. I missed the memo. God's truth, God's word, you'll see they go together. God's word 
over our opinions, that we have to be a people who value God's word over our opinions, that instead of valuing our opinions and trusting in our opinions over God's word, the problem is what will we'll be completely unanchored and swept away. And so what we're going to look at this morning is first God's word, why it's important, what it is about God's word that anchors us. So in other words, God's word is the anchoring bolt that holds us in place when the pressure comes. Why is God's word important? And then second, our opinions. And why are they not as trustworthy as we might assume? Why is it that our opinions have become such a a strong thing in our day that we cling to and fight for our opinions? But why aren't they also that trustworthy? And then third, how to anchor in the word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you. Lord, that in in a day in which we feel the the pressure is mounting, we feel... uh, just these, all these different disorienting, confusing things that are turning us in circles and sweeping us around us and, and the political stuff and the social stuff and the, just the idea of what is truth, the philosophical issues, all these things are coming together and creating choppy cross currents. And Lord, we individually feel this pressure mounting in our own souls. Lord, we feel this pressure around us. Lord, the question is, how do we stay firm? And Lord, we start here. Lord, we thank you that you've revealed in your word who you are. So Lord, we can anchor in your word. You've given us something solid we can grab onto. And start there and stand there unmoved. So Lord, help us, convict us, console us, whatever we need this morning. Lord, would you help us to see how beautiful and good and precious and wonderful is your word. And may we be a people who walk away from here just hungry for more of your word, hungry to to just feast on your word. Yes, it's in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a little bit of the context, because we're jumping into 2 Timothy and the context of why Paul is writing this letter to Timothy. Timothy was a younger man who was a pastor of a church, and Paul is writing this letter in the midst of the everyday things of life. And, and the church is starting to experience pressures. The church is starting to experience where the waters are building up, and they're, they're feeling it bearing down on them. And, they're, and, and Timothy's writing to Paul going, how, how do we survive all this? What do we do in the midst of all this? And Paul responds to him in the midst of that context. This is what he says starting at the beginning of, again, 2 Timothy 3, chapter 3, verse 1. But understand this, Paul says, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. See, Paul says, listen, Timothy, what's happening is not something that's just unique to what's going on to you. In other words, in the last days, by the way, last days here is not just referring to like revelation, like, hey, at the end times, there'll be some weird guy with horns and he's going to come. And then at that point, then you better actually watch out. No, what Paul's saying in the last days is that from the time of Christ's ascension after his resurrection at Pentecost until Jesus comes in his second coming, the New Testament refers to that as the last days. We are in the last days. And he's saying in every generation, while it may look different in the way that it plays out, in the specific kind of angles and pressures and things that are coming at you, it will come. Trouble will come. Pressure will come. The levees will give way. It's not something, I I heard somebody recently talking about when they were a young person, they were kind of complaining about life and having to get a job, and the person was just sitting there, you know, like that Willy Wonka, you know, meme, where he's just saying, like, tell me more, right? And he just said, the guy looked at him and he said, you know, you talk about it as if this is a tragedy unique to you. (laughs) You have to get a job, right? And I think it's the same thing that in some ways Paul's saying, we think that the reality of the world around the church bearing down and putting pressure to move and deviate from what we know is true. We think it's unique, but in fact, it's actually promised in Scripture. In fact, if anything, what Paul would say is, uh, here are the three seasons you're in as a church. It's the same thing you can apply to suffering in our lives. He says, you're, you're either going to be going into a season of trouble or you're in a season of trouble where the pressure is going to be coming down, or you're coming out of a season where the pressure is coming down. In other words, this is part of the Christian life, and it comes in different rhythms and waves, but it will come. 
And so Paul says this is coming the last days where people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And we could unpack this and say, what are the ways that this is similar to our day, dissimilar, what's going on there? But here's the thing. Paul sums it up in verse 8 when he says that just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, don't worry about them, but he says, so also these men opposed the truth. In other words, what's going on, why this is happening all around Paul, why he sees it happening, what's happening and just animating all the people he's engaging with, the thing where you're kind of swept out into the waters that are all around us, what's doing that, what's creating that is something that's opposed to that truth. And what Paul says, he says, this is going to happen in your day. In Timothy, it will happen in your context. It will happen in our day. Storms will come. It's not a question of if, but Paul says it's a question of what will anchor you. Paul then talks about how, because you can imagine, Timothy's probably written to him. And if you've read the New Testament, you know that Paul has several times he talks about, you know, I was persecuted in this way, and I was beaten up, and I was in prison, and I was shipwrecked, and he just has this impressive resume of suffering. And he goes through it, and then so Timothy's probably writing to him going, Paul, how do you endure? How do you stand fast? How are you so confident? And here's the other thing. How, Paul, are you just such a man of joy? Like Paul's, in the Old Testament, refers to the prophet Ezekiel as, a, as having a flint, a forehead like flint, right? Just having this forehead that's like, like just... Un, unmoved by whatever is around. But then at the same time, Paul, you just ooze with joy. You ooze with love. You're literally the first guy to lay down your life for other people around you. You're not bitter. You're not jaded. You're, you're just oozing with this. And you're telling people about Jesus all the time. And then they throw you in prison. And then you're in prison. They're like, that'll shut him up. And then you start singing hymns. And they're like, ah, oh, he's singing. They're like, we just can't shut this guy up. He's just oozing with life. Where'd you get that? And don't we want that? I feel that. I don't want right now as things are changing all around me and you're trying to like, you feel like you're just like paddling through this stuff, trying to figure out what's going on in the world around us. And we get so jaded. We get so bitter. We get so overwhelmed and anxious. And what Paul says here to Timothy is in the midst of it, believe me, there is something here that will hold you down. And it's just otherworldly, but it is deeply rooted in the reality of the world you've been placed into. You can have this joy and life. And when others around you see this, it is otherworldly because it makes no sense. Paul says, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and suffering that happened to me, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Jesus Christ will be persecuted. Yes, Timothy, this is going to happen. But in the midst of it, I have love. I have steadfastness. I have patience. I'm not this grumbler and cantankerous, you know, like the person who just, as they get older, they just get more and more bitter. And you're like, oh, the world these days. Right? And we don't want to be that. Paul's not that. And he says, how? What anchored me? I'm not just some stubborn person. I have life. He goes on to tell him what anchored him. Verse 14, but as for you, continue in what you have learned. Paul's saying, listen, this is, this is what I've learned and you've learned. Timothy, grab onto this. This is where life is found. What you firmly believe, knowing from whom you learned it. But he, uh, from childhood, he says, and at the beginning of the letter, he refers to Timothy's grandmother and mother and says that they were very influential in his life. They taught him the Bible and they... They really nurtured his faith. He says, you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So what does Paul say? Where do I anchor myself, Timothy? Where can you anchor yourself? The same thing where I anchor myself, which is in the word of God. Now, what Paul does, because you can imagine when you read this, a lot of us think that this Bible is just kind of like this book, right? And so we, we have some form of this book, and it's just kind of there. And maybe you come from a family or a tradition where you just saw, you know, like the massive one, right? 
like the king size one, sitting on someone's end table, and it was just kind of there, right? And it was all dusty. Maybe we tend to look at the Bible as maybe just some like record of religious experience. Some people, after they had some experiences, they called it religious, they projected it into the sky, and they said, that must be God. And then they came up with some worship, ways of worshiping, and they wrote that down. And so now it's really just, a, it's a, you know, studying anthropology or history or something. But Paul says that is not at all what God's word is. And catch what profound words he uses here. See, in our English, it says that all scripture is God-breathed. That phrase, God-breathed, is actually a compound word that Paul made up in the Greek. It, it is not a word that existed. And what Paul does is he puts together the word both for God and then also the word for spirit or breathed. In other words, what God, he does is he puts it together and he says, I don't know how to explain exactly what the nature of this, this, this book is, what, what this sacred writings, what they are. This is God-breathed. And here's the significance of that. Again, he's not just saying somebody wrote this down because they had some experience. And then we can just, or it's just a book of rules that we're to follow. And so what he's saying is that God, who is the reality behind all the realities, reality of all existence, nothing exists without him. That very being created the world. He spoke it into existence. And then that being, then he revealed by breathing into and inspiring writers. But he not only inspired the writers to write it, but he also, in doing it, was exhaling. He was expiring out his breath from his very self. In other words, get, get this, the very being who created all of reality now has revealed how all of reality works and how we can know that being, and how we can be in relationship with them. This is more of a love letter than it is just some historical work of fiction. This is something where he is letting us know all of the mysteries of the universe. You want to know me. You want to know life. You want to know joy. You want to know happiness. It's right here. And so he says that the man can be equipped, the man or woman can be equipped. It's profitable for teaching for reproof, for correction. That when we go over here, then we can get aligned. And when we think we know something, and then it can correct us. And when our desires lead us over here and we don't know what to do and we're all confused, then we can actually ground ourselves somewhere and go, I don't, I don't know because there's so much around me, but I do know this and I can start here. And it can ground our lives. For training in righteousness. Why is that? Well, let me finish and I'll come back to righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Why good works? Because this is the one who created the world. And in seven days he created it and it was good. It was very good. And now this same one is revealing how to live in light of that good world and live in alignment with it. He's saying you're able to do works and live your life in a way that's not against the grain of reality. But you can live a life that actually produces fruit and joy. That's righteousness. This is profound what Paul is saying here. God's word is a gracious gift. As Jesus said, a father, when we ask God, how in the midst of all this confusion, in the midst of my age, in the midst of my generation, I'm trying to figure out how to live my life and what I should do. And I have all these desires and impulses. I feel, what, what do I do with these? He doesn't, in the midst of you're crying out, what do I do with my guilt? How do I find how to live? How can I feel good? How can, whatever it is. In the midst of it, we're like children crying out, and he doesn't hand us, as Jesus says, he doesn't hand us a snake or a stone. When we're crying out, God, what do I do? He gives us this gift of his word. He gives us bread, the bread of life. He gives us his word. And so we trust that scripture as a church. You will hear us use terms like we believe the Bible is an infallible and that it's inerrant. Some of you, those terms matter. Some of you are like, never heard those words before. Don't worry about it except for that we believe that God has graciously revealed himself, and because it's from God, his word, we believe that it does cannot err by its nature because it's from God, but also that it does not err. And we believe God has revealed what we need so we might have life in him. And we can anchor ourselves in the midst of what I would say is not just the storm outside of us, but the storm within us. Every day we wake up with desires and outside pressures, 
stir up those desires and our stirred up desires makes us anxious in different ways we interact with the, the reality around us and the pressures around us. And in the midst of it, all those desires, it's like, what do I, do I just conform everything to my desires? No, what God says is, I've given you a word where you can conform yourself to this word, to this truth, to this reality, and I'll anchor you. Now, I, I want to quickly address something, because I, I shared a few weeks ago that I grew up in a, um, I didn't grow up in a Christian home. And I found that when I came, became a Christian, there were several years where I kind of false started, you could say, my, my Christian walk. Uh, and it was because I was, I was with a group at the time that primarily how they saw kind of what do you build your life on, your walk with Christ, they build it on essentially emotional experiences. Notice what, and this is important, because I think right now with everything that's going on, we keep kind of running towards trying to have the next experience, the next mountain high experience, and, and we think that those will be, the, which are not bad. Mountain high experiences are fine. God uses them to like arrest us, to wake us up, to jostle us, to confirm some things, to inspire us, to motivate us. He uses them, but here's the thing. They don't sustain us. They can't. Our, our feelings are too subjective. Our lives are too subjective. Things around us are too subjective. They're, they're just all over the place. And so what I want to address first is that our, we can't build our lives just on emotional experiences or mountain high experiences. The Christian life, you will get swept completely away if you live based on that. What hit me when, it, when this really clicked was when I was reading a Second Peter. You know, Peter the Apostle. I, I, I imagine myself like, imagine if Peter were here. And it's after Jesus has ascended and he's at the church. And I imagine people were writing to Peter going, man, Peter, I'm, I'm really discouraged, all these things. And then Peter's like, well, this is how you can, this is what's true. And then you can imagine what you would want to say. That's easy for you to say. You walked with Jesus, right? Like you experienced Jesus. This is easy for you. You had the experiences. Peter responds to essentially that when he writes it. And he talks about when he had the ultimate mountaintop experience and what he found that was better to anchor his soul and give him joy. It's in 1 Peter 1, or 2 Peter 1. He says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now, what he's going to talk about here and unpack is the experience of seeing Jesus in the transfiguration. You remember it was James and John and Peter, they were invited up on the mountain, the VIP mountaintop experience, if there ever was one, where they literally went up to the top of a mountain, and Jesus was transfigured in his glory, the glory of God, and they view it. No greater mountaintop experience could you ever have. And Peter had that. And then he says, for when we received honor, he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Can you imagine hearing God speak like that? The mountain trembles as God speaks. You see his glory. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Wow. Wow, Peter. That must be the anchor bolt that's, that just holds you, right? No. Peter doesn't say that's actually what saints him. He actually says, and this could be translated actually, but or and, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. What actually confirms our faith? What actually grounds us more? He says, to which you will do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place. He's referring there to Psalm 100, a lamp for our feet, or 101, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So what he's saying there is, listen, it is not going to the next concert, having the next, whether it's listening to the next lecture or finding the next insight or all these, like it's not about any of that. The thing is you have God's word, which speaks his promises to you, which brings you to him. And also not only that, but the spirit of God inspired the original writers and carried them along. By the way, this is the closest we ever get in scripture to a description of how inspiration happened in that moment. 
But God carried them along, and then now also the Bible is the only book in world history where the author actually comes along beside you when you're reading it to help you understand it. And what Peter is saying is what will ground you is God's Word, His timeless truths, not experiences. And what Paul says to Timothy is Timothy, because look what he says. He doesn't say, Timothy, from childhood you had great traditions. From childhood you had some kind of experiences as a Christian. He had those. But he doesn't say ground your identity there. He says ground it, and you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. In other words, root yourself in your faith. Anchor yourself down with the word of God. Anything else can be gone by lunch. Now, before we get into how, so then you're like, whoa, great. How do we anchor ourselves in God's word? I'm ready. I want to consider why, and especially as modern people, we're so tempted to value our opinion over God's word. Now, so second, our opinion. Uh, I could easily say, why do we value our opinion over God's word? And I could just go, well, because of sin, right? And you'd all be like, mm, we're in church, yep, okay, yep. You know, like, <laughs> okay, yeah, it's sin, right? Yes, it is sin. But in what way? We, we need to be wiser than that. What are the mechanics? What's going on? And I think in some ways, we are uniquely and from a specific angle susceptible to this, unlike in any other time in world history, why we so much value our opinions over God's word. Paul says, notice, you could almost summarize chapter 3 as Paul saying there are two functional ways to live. You'll either live based upon uh, God's word or you'll live based upon someone else's word. Now, in Paul's day, the context would have been that almost it was pretty much an animated culture. Everyone believed in a God, supernatural realities. So it would have been more like they believed in a different God, and because they believed in a different God, they would have just been saying, well, but this God believes this and all that, and Paul's saying, well, how's that working for you? Look, look at the list of things that are going on here. And that's kind of what was going on. In our day, though, it's different because now the claim is that there is no God. And that changes something. It introduces a dynamic. Because if we live in a... If God is who He says He is... I believe he is. And God has created the world, then that means that the God who created all of reality now has revealed how that reality works, and he's made it known to us so that then we can know how to live and be righteous. Okay? See how that thread works? However, if we live in a world where God does not exist and everything is an accident, then that means that's incumbent upon us to actually construct all meaning, all truth, all ethics. And what's happening right now, see, so what happens is it's not only, and what I'm saying is, I want to be careful because the things that we, we go, oh, look at the culture, look what the culture's doing, and I want to say, be careful because we often lap up the same waters as the culture does. We learn and are discipled in the same things. We're formed in them. And to be a modern Western person is to be in a society that essentially what's happening right now is that if we are now waking up to the fact that wait a minute, if we say there's no God, then why are we living by all these rules? Because this is largely in Western Hemisphere developed over the foundation of a Judeo-Christian worldview, i.e. Scripture. And so we hold to things like the Imago Dei and love your neighbor and the way we do human rights and the way that we do uh, views of gender, sexuality, all the hot button issues. All of those are rooted in this. And what's happening right now and the turmoil right now is everyone saying, wait a minute, if this, if this was all completely constructed by us and there wasn't actually any absolute truth, there wasn't actually a foundation there to begin with, then it's incumbent upon us to tear everything down and reconstruct truth. In other words, the element that was introduced is not only, we have opinions, I want to live by my opinion, but also this notion that, see, we can actually construct what is true and then we expect reality around us to conform to what we say is now true. And so now it's exactly reversed. God created us in order to know him and then has revealed in his word how we know him. And the call is to conform our desires and our wants to the reality of who he is and what he says is true. 
Instead, we live in a day and age where exactly at the core of who we are as modern people is the idea that we can actually change reality, conform it to our desires. Fundamentally reverse. And so in our day, this is why our opinions come with such a strong impulse, I think. Because in some ways with technology, in some areas it seems almost possible, why can't we just change everything about the reality of the world around us? Now, in other words, we're trained to believe our opinion not only is not only authority, but that we can conform reality to it. But while it may look different in our day, Paul, I would say, the same impulses that Paul impacts here are still underneath it. Human nature is t- timeless. It just plays out differently. The, uh, when we use the word opinion, it comes from the Latin root word for think. So opinion means to essentially just navigate your life based on what you think. You wake up in the day, what's the map, what's the compass say? Well, whatever I think. Now, on the surface, that's, you know, of course, in some ways, that's fine. Like, and it's fine to have opinion, like, do I like Doritos or Cheetos, right? The Eatos. Like, which one do I like, right? Like, okay, there's that, but what's, what do we mean by navigating them when we get to the more foundational of this? Next week, we're going to look at some of the aspects of consumerism, and that's where it's like some of those things, though, having ultimate unlimited choice has made us believe then, okay, well, then now I can actually redefine basic realities like gender, sex, and other things. It's part of who we are as modern people. And it's fine on a surface level, but however, here's the thing, and this is where Paul's going to go. Be very careful because the assumption is there that when we think, when we have opinions, it's purely, a, it's, it's a pure thought process. It's rational. It's well thought out. But what Paul says is not so fast. The question is what actually guides your thinking? What actually feeds your thinking? What feeds your opinion? Paul in verse 13, the one verse I skipped over, says, while evil people and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. From bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. What's Paul saying here? Well, first he says evil people because what, and I think Paul is saying, he's, he's hitting on something that's back in Genesis 6, 4, when it says that all of their hearts were evil continuously. And he's saying that this is the state of humanity after the fall, that our hearts are bent where, just like in the garden where Satan came and said, the whole thing was, well, should you trust God's word? Well, did God really say, hmm, I desire that apple. All right, I'm actually going to make God's word say what I want it to say so I can have the apple. This dynamic is right at the core of our fall. And what Paul says, you live that way, it ends up in evil. In other words, again, there is a storm already in our souls, just like a storm outside of us. And only God's word can ground us. But the way that that storm plays out is that he says it goes from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Why? Because we're trying constantly to rationalize our truth claims. We're trying to rationalize our opinions. In other words, our desires direct our thinking and our opinions. So what Paul's saying here is you're being deceived and deceived because you think that you're just living based on your truth. You're living based on your opinions. You're living based on your thinking. But what's happening is in that process, you're actually being deceived because what's going on deep down is there's something that's actually driving your thinking that's deceiving you. In other words, you think you're free, you're completely enslaved. And you're controlled. And if you live this way, unanchored from any truth, foundation, then what will happen is you will be deceived. You will be easy to manipulate. You will be easy to play with like putty in their hands. And all the while, you'll think you're being rational. And you'll think it's your choice. And you'll think it's wise. But it'll end in destruction. This is throughout Scripture, a theme. Proverbs 4 says, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Watch your heart from your soul, what your soul wants, what your soul wants, what your heart wants. Your mind will begin to find rational. 
what your soul wants and grabs onto, your affections will find desirable. What your soul wants and is focused on, then your will will find doable. The Bible says, as Jesus says, out of the heart of man flow all the things that condemn him. In other words, it's not so simple just to say, I have an opinion. When we have an opinion, sure, it's one thing to have an opinion on, on these great issues and all these things I hear. But when it comes to these foundational things, what God is saying is if you live, and what Paul's saying is if you live based upon your opinion, you let that guide you and you let it ground you, you're just going to be swept away by the storm that's already inside of you. Think about it. If you're scared, you'll desire safety and you'll rationalize giving power to that person or that movement. If you're lonely and you desire affection, you'll rationalize or explain away troubling patterns in that guy or gal, right? You'll compromise. If you're discontent, you'll desire novelty and you'll rationalize bad purchases or you'll entertain that extra conversation with that attractive, listening coworker. If you're hurting, you're bitter, you'll desire vengeance and rationalize saying or acting in destructive ways. It is not just God's truth over our opinion. Opinion's bad. Don't have any opinion. It's just God's truth. It's not, it's not the, the whole point is we, if our opinion doesn't align with God's word, then we go after our opinion. It will destroy us. That's the whole thing. We don't want to be enslaved. You don't want to be someone who's just easily controlled throughout your life and always susceptible to the next deceit. And the only way you can keep going down that road is to continue to deceive yourself and deceive yourself and deceive yourself in order to make the narrative work so you can get up and look in the mirror every day. And what Paul is saying is don't go down that road. And right now there are so many pressures that will push you down that road. Saying allow God's word to anchor you. And yes, God's word, of course, is going to say things that when it anchors you, I'll go into this in a little bit, but there'll be so many things that when you come up against it, you're like, ah, this rubs against the grain of who I am. It's like, yes, because you're fallen. But where God's word is clear, it makes it clear in an age when we think we're being deeply disempowered and the height of humanity. I think all we have to look at is what's going on with advertising and the ability to control and manipulate through social media. It's already, the documentaries are already coming out. We're already realizing this because we are so, it's so deeply disempowering. So deeply dehumanizing. It's, it's, it's being led astray. We, we're living by instinct, living by our opinions, living by our desires. It's not opinions. It's desires taking the form of thoughts. And what happens is then we're just led away to the slaughter like beasts of the field. And God says, I want you to be made alive by grace. Come to me. Let me make you alive so that you might live as my image bearer, taking dominion, conforming your life and your heart and your desires to who I am. Listen, I just want to say this really quick. Church historian uh, Carl Truman, there's a book called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, and it is incredibly important. I can't remember what the name of the new one is called. They just came out with a simpler one. One's like 400, 500 pages long, one's 200. If you look up Rise and Fall of Arise and triumph of the modern self. You'll find it. I wish every Christian would read it. But he says that the 20th century into the 21st century could be described like this. This is what's happened. And this is the storm, the dynamic specific of the storm we're in. And what happened was we started to conceive of ourselves in understanding truth based upon the psych our psychological reality. In other words, what we feel what we desire. And we started defining truth based upon that. What is true is my truth because I feel it. And we began to actually think in terms of these categories that that actually defines what is true. That was not something throughout human history. You didn't go, well, I feel this. And they were like, well, pff, you feel it, right? No, no one ever would do that in human history. It's a new phenomenon that my experience of it can assert onto the world and expect it to conform to my inner state. Then what happened was that 
because the primal desire that we have that's universal is sex, immediately what happened with this way of psychologizing truth is that then we sexualize the self. And then after we sexualize, because that is the primal desire that drives everyone. And so immediately we go to sex and we say, well, let's think through all of our feelings and our experiences, primarily weighting it towards sex. And so we hypersexualize the individual and the understanding and the psychology of the individual. And then after we did that, because now if we're in this place of trying to conform the world, especially to our sexual desires, just to take one area, an issue, then what we must do now in order to make the world conform to it and make the narrative work for everyone is we must politicize sex. That's what changed about six years ago in a really profound way. And what's happening now is we're saying that you must, we have to legislate it in order to make conform to it. You must speak a certain way. You must say certain things, whether or not you think they're true. And why is this? Because we live in a day when we are deconstructing, we're trying to construct a new reality. And in the midst of constructing that new reality, we're saying, you have to conform to this reality. And reality has to conform to these desires. The reason why I go there is because we as a church need to be a people who are not merely rooting ourselves in our opinions. Because as this happens, those waters are going to get, they're going to hit harder. They're already hitting, they hit me hard every day. When I hear the different voices I hear, I'm like, well, maybe I'm wrong. You know, like this stuff hits us. And we need to be anchored down to this truth or else because in the midst of it, we have to be affected and know God's word. To find life in God's word. So when those who are out there drowning around us, when we feel like it's overwhelming us, in the midst of it, we know, here's the thing, I'm not moving. This is where I stand. And in the midst of it, we're able to not just kind of scoff at people when they're out there, and they're being overwhelmed because they're being deceived and lied to. And it's killing them. And now we're trying to make the entire world and all of society reconfigured so that it will actually support it so we can go another generation keeping up the lie. And the best way we as a church, what we can do is we can be anchored in God's timeless truth and his grace and coming to his word again and again and again and receiving life. And then those who don't have life to be able to throw a life raft that's connected, we're grounded in this reality, and then to be able to invite them into that reality. The world right now will not care about opinions. That's just jumping into the water and just trying to swim alongside. We must be rooted in God's word, and only his word can anchor us. And I would say again, because I think we're all in it, I think we all feel it, and I, maybe I'm help, helpfully maybe putting my finger on something you feel in yourself because we're so used to saying, I can make the world be whatever I want, my truth, I can conform the reality around me because it's everything we ever hear is just below the surface. It's assumed. So we need it first in our own lives. God Will you, by your word, will you help me conform my life, myself, to who you are? And then we're able to live a life that's fruitful in the world around us. So let's talk about that. How do we anchor in God's word? I'll close, you know, this is where we're laying the plane. As, as a church, here's the thing. When we say we value these things as a church, uh, <laughs> what, what is the church, Right? The, the, the church is us. The church is the people. In other words, if we all just say, actually, we value our opinion over God's word, and we're going to start living that way. Well, it doesn't matter what Anthem Church's value is, right? Like, it's gone, right? <laughs> we are the church. So we as a church, here's the thing what I'm saying is, I can talk about how we as a church are going to hold to the reality of God's word, to hold to the truth and sufficiency, the need for God's word, the timelessness of God's word and to apply it to our day. And we will not deviate from it, not as long as breath of my lungs. So we will not deviate from that. However, what we really need is to be a people who are right now of all times, you could say drilling down deeper because we want to drill down into the reality of who God is. And as it comes, what happens is we use Scripture is what anchors us. So we need to be in God's Word. So first thing, a few steps. One, have a plan. You're like, is that a 
really? Is that your first point? Yes, have a plan, right? <laughs> Here's the thing. If you do not plan your life, you've probably heard this before. If you don't plan your life, someone else will. When I wake up, there are about, I don't know how many things on my phone that are like ready. When Jesus went away in the morning, have you ever caught this? Mark 1, like 41. Mark 1, 41. Jesus goes away into the desert and he's having a, essentially a quiet time. He goes out to meet with his father. And then it says that all of his friends, all of his disciples, they came looking for him and they couldn't find him. You know why? Jesus went somewhere where they couldn't find him, right? Jesus is the son of God who's talking to his father. If anyone has a direct line, like the bat phone, like the red phone, it's like Jesus has got that phone, right? We, we're trying to connect with God. And in the midst of it, we wake up and guess what? We invite in our friends. We invite in all the messaging. We invite in and we go immediately to email. We invite in and go immediately to text. We go to all these things. In other words, every day, let God be the first one who speaks to you and grounds you to anchor you. And do you have a plan for that? I actually, for a while, had to go to an analog alarm clock until I got this thing that buzzes at me because my phone, it would go off and I, it's like, well, I'm not going to look at my phone first. But then I look at it and I'm like, just 30 seconds, right? And then and it's an hour later and I haven't been in the Word of God. Do you have a plan? I would say there's so many distractions, so many words that are coming in to be in the Word. And I would say that right now, especially also just the amount that you're in Scripture versus there's so many forms of media now that are uh, we're able to latch onto and listen to and hear the Word and opinion of others. What I would say, are you listening to and reading? Are you hearing God's Word? I'm going to uh, there, here's something I'm hearing. How in the world can we actually disciple Christians when they're listening more to pundits than to pastors? Now, that's not trying to get you to listen to me more. But what I'm saying is there is a reality here to we are listening more to opinionated political and whatever pundits than we are listening to God's word. And we need to be grounded. Again, opinions in different areas of life, fine. However, do we even, are we even able to form an opinion unless we're rooted in God's word on what they're saying? And then the second thing is, if we're not rooted in God's word, does their word begin to just become the only word we live on and then the only thing we can give to the world around us or dads and moms to our kids, to our families, to your classmates, is merely opinion versus God's word. So do you have a plan to be in God's word? What I would say, we're going to send out tomorrow with our email. We'll, we'll put a um, Bible reading plan. I'm going to insert that in there and a few other things so you have somewhere to start. But I would say if you're right now... I don't, don't hear this. Don't hear like guilt trip. I'll, you're not in the word. And you're like, I'm not in my Bible. Ah, I shouldn't have even come to church. I knew I was off, right? Like I knew I was going to get in trouble. What I would say is just start, start with the gospel of Mark. Okay. Start with the gospel of Mark and just tomorrow morning, set aside time and just read for five minutes. When you go to bed tonight, here's your first step. Set it out. Open your Bible, set it on the counter or desk, wherever you'll be and set it there and have it ready. Okay? And focus on just going to that open Bible for the first week every day and begin reading. Because here's the thing. You're going to go there, and then you're going to be like, well, I feel kind of weird if I don't actually start reading, right? And then you'll start reading, and then form a habit, okay? So have a plan to start your day in God's Word. Consider your approach. I'm going to hit some of these fast. I would say take, we need to take stock of where we're living based on our opinions over God's word. I shared before, again, I came from a non-Christian background. I came and I opened up the Bible and I was just like, uh-uh, 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 right? Like, I like Jesus, like the love narrative, but uh-uh, uh-uh. Like, I was reading all these issues. I didn't grow up in a family. I, I grew up in a completely, uh, as far as values, completely different than Scripture. And so I had to do a lot of praying to go, God, will you conform my desires to your word and it was a long wrestling process. And I just had, thankfully, mentors that sat me down and said, well, what does God's word say? And I was like, well, I know what I want it to say. And I'm really good at getting something to say what I want it to say. And it's really easy to read into scripture what you want it to say. It can be. And so check your heart. Scripture again and again says to bring ourselves before the Lord and not stand over his word, but to stand under it. Stand submission under God's word and say, God, I'm, some of these things, they're hard, but listen, if your, God always agrees with your opinion, guess who God is? Your opinion. And after a while, what will happen is you'll realize he's a figment of your imagination. And then it will crush you. God is God. He is holy. None of us align with who he is. 
And when we encounter his God, we encounter him. And we realize when we encounter him, there are ways that we are living apart from who he is. And he is gracious to reprove us, to correct us, and realign us to his righteousness and who he is. Are you willing to read God's word and let God speak? It's the only thing right now that will anchor you. There are too many things coming at you. Every day, you will be. So then read to know. Here's the thing. Just, I know we read our scripture, we read the Bible and we want to know things, but I, I just want to share something with you, somebody who's been through, I've been through a lot of like Bible training, and here's the thing that can easily happen. We read to know things about God, but not to know him. And God invites us with scripture to know him. This is not merely a book of data. This is a love letter where God is making known to you how he has made a way for him, a holy God, for you as sinners to have life with him forever. This is an invitation to that reality for it to start today. And so every day, go and read this letter. It's, you know, knowing about is like, sometimes we approach scripture like, I, I used to do this. I approach scripture like, a, like a, if you want to know the president, I approach scripture or the president like a presidential historian. Oh, I know. Look at these details about him and look at this clause and look at this and this is subjugated to this and da, 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 da. Have you heard this Latin word, right? And, and so I would, I would just know all this data. But the thing was, the whole time, I don't know him. I know about him. And God is saying, I want to be present with you. I want to know you. I want you to know me. And so what God invites us to is more knowing God like the White House gardener, right? Where someone who, he may not know all the facts about God. He might not know all the places in the Bible to turn and have all the answers. He might not know all those things. He might not know everything about him. But what he knows is every day he says hello and he knows him and he talks to him. And he could probably tell you a lot more about who he is versus just like what he's done or things about him. Be more like the gardener. Be more like the one who sticks and just takes hold of God when you come to his word. God, help me to know you. Reveal yourself to me. So I'd be close to you. Jesus came, Emmanuel, God among us. That is the promise, and God comes by his spirit. And that's the next one. Pray for insight. Ask God to draw near, to give you insight, and then to give you intimacy. 1 Corinthians says, For these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. In other words, again, this, the author comes to be with you. God desires for you to know him, to have insights, and to walk in wisdom, to be convicted, to be conforming your life to him, but also to be encouraged and to have intimacy and to walk with him. God is predisposed. Do you ask him? Ask him. Take time and go before him. And then lastly, conform yourself to the word through action. This is incredibly important. When you read God's word, it will contradict how you think and how you live. And what will happen when that happens is you have a choice. You can play the game and pretend and you can just perform and you can read God's word and you can hear things and start to believe them about righteousness and how to live and face them. But then at the same time, you can live over here and not live in accordance with it. And that's a very dangerous place to be. What it does in your soul is kind of like the, uh, the same thing as what happens when your wheels are misaligned. One wheel is going this way and now one wheel is going this way. And you can drive for a while like that. It's a little bit bumpy every now and then, but eventually there's a blowout. My fear is that for some of you, you're on the edge of a blowout. You're on the edge of having not done what 1 John says when he says to confess our sins. First before the Lord, the, spirit, the word of God is going to perfectly reveal, as James says, look into a mirror and it's going to reveal the law of righteousness and liberty. It's going to show you what life looks like. But then after that, then to go to other brothers and sisters and say, help me to conform my life and my desires to this. And here's the thing, you're, you're always going to be aware that there's some misalignment, that there's always going to be that. I'm not saying like, now be obedient and walk in perfection. What I'm saying though is, when you go to God and you say, God, give me your grace, show me who you are, what am I missing? My desires are here, versus just going through life, just pretending as if your desires align with God and making him align to you. What instead is he, he says, yes, there is something in you that's misaligned, but here's the thing, I've come into the world, I made you to know me, and I've made a way. 
And that way is so that you would be conformed to my righteousness. You'd be conformed to who I am. And you can find that in Christ. And long before you actually are walking in perfect obedience and walking in righteousness, you can be found righteous in Christ and know that truth. And then slowly but surely take hold of my grace day in and day out, hearing it from my word, not playing games with me, but actually dealing with it based on truth. And slowly but surely over time, as 2 Corinthians 3 says, as we behold him, as we behold Christ, we are transformed from one degree of glory to another. God does a work of conforming us to Christ's likeness slowly. But are you willing to start and lay yourselves before God and his word where he has spoken once and for all and say, God, correct, reprove, encourage, breathe life into me. God will do this work. Don't play that game of being misaligned. Bring others in, but take action. The analogy of the house being moved, I want to close with this. It would be easy to think that what I'm saying is as a church, what we're going to do is we, we just hunker down. Shut the doors, shut the windows, get ready. It's happening around us. Shut it out. But here's the thing. That would be to miss the overall message of God's word. <laughs> the whole message is the fact that he seeks the lost. He, he comes first to us that we are the lost. That apart from him, Lord, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. That's, that's what we, we feel often. Lord, I know this is true in me. I know there's that storm is in me. Lord, by your grace, again, would you draw me to yourself? Lord, by your word, would you tether me? Would you anchor me down again and again? But God's word from beginning to end is, you are so lost without me, but I've made a way for you to know me as me not distant in your sin, not distant in darkness, but to come into the light, to come into my presence forever and to be with me. And God's word calls us to be so anchored in him in the midst of our generation. Here's the call of God's word. Be in the word so that you would be so anchored in whatever cultural environment God has placed you in. So that then when they are reaching their way for you, as Paul says in Acts 17, as they're reaching for him, you would know enough because you're in the reality of the world. We get it. We see it. We feel it. We've confessed these things. We've come to God and had to repent of these things. We've died to these things and found life in Christ. And then when some, in other words, we know the gospel they need. If we'll be honest. And then as they're searching, you're able to take their hand and say, this is who you're looking for. It'd be easy to just plug our ears, close the doors, but God calls us to open our hearts and our homes, as well as the word first. There are going to be many refugees from the cultural revolution we are in. We're not shutting the doors or just withdrawing and just getting passive aggressive. Talk about how good we are and look what a mess they are. They are hungry for something solid firm, healthy, flourishing, and they're deceiving themselves. But ultimately, they're deceiving themselves and the desire can only be met in Jesus and they're hungry to know him. Their hearts are restless until they find their rest in God. And they, just like us, need this anchor. And the question is, will we be so used to living by our opinions that that's all we have to give them? Or will we have the only thing that anchors down when everything around us is just getting washed away? So here's the thing, Anthem. We will anchor in God's word, not merely because it is right, but because it, what it reveals. It is right. <laughs> it is true. It is perfect. It is trustworthy. But also because of what it reveals, that there is a holy God of the universe who has called us to salvation and life in himself. He reconciles. He extends mercy and grace and life, and he equips us by his word if we are willing to be ready to do a good work in our generation. But it will be more anchored down and not just trying to play nice all the time, but being anchored down in truth. We'll stand unmoved 
with both Bibles and hearts open wide. Equipped from God's word for every good work in our day, knowing that if God can create the world by his word and breathe life into us, then his breathed out word can breathe life into not only us, but also those adrift and lost in the storm. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Lord, we thank you for these truths, Lord, in the midst of it, Lord. We, we feel it, Lord. I, I, I feel it, my soul, every day, Lord. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love, as it's in the old hymn. Lord, I, I feel it, Lord, apart from your grace, apart from your word tethering me, grounding me, Lord. So many desires that come, so many temptations in the world around us, so many things pulling at our focus. Lord, would you help us? Would you cut through? Would you help us ground ourselves, anchor ourselves in your word? Lord, here we stand. As throughout church history, from Polycarp to Martin Luther, Lord, over and over again, recant, turn away, give in to your desires. And again, the common refrain, how could I leave the God I love? I stand here resolved on the word of God who reveals the one who loves my soul. Lord, you make us people like that. People so saturated with the story of how you've made known to us your love, how you've saved us, that you would root us as loving people, but also truthful people. We're grounded in the reality of you. And we'd be anchored by your word. Lord, keep us unmoved. In Jesus' name, amen.